The sermon for this morning will be on Psalm 139. The New Testament reading, though, first will be from Hebrews 4, 1 through 13. Hebrews 4, 1 through 13. Hear now the reading of God's most holy word. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened, referring here to Old Covenant Israel. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, They shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter it because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David, and so long afterward, in the words already quoted, Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And so, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Let us go now to Psalm 139. Psalm 139. The title is, To the Choir Master, A Psalm of David. It reads, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where should I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eye saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. 
Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way of everlasting. So far the reading of God's most holy word. May he add his blessing to the preaching of it this morning. This psalm should sound very familiar to you. I'll sometimes read the first four verses of this psalm before the confession of sin and assurance of pardon in our liturgy. Those first four verses, they are helpful to prepare us for the silent confession of our sins to the Lord. For they remind us that God, God sees our sins anyways. So what is the point of trying to hide from, from Him? God has atoned for our sins in Christ Jesus. He is merciful and kind. He is eager to forgive. And so come to Him. Confess your sins. Turn from them and to Christ, having been washed in His blood. That is how I typically use this psalm, at least the first four verses of it, to prepare us to confess our sins to the Lord. He, he sees everything. Uh, you, you, you cannot hide your sins from Him. So do not try. Run to Him instead and cry out to Him for mercy and grace. So this psalm should sound familiar to you. I read it often. And it is a marvelous psalm, useful for this very purpose. But there is more to it than just this. The whole psalm is a contemplation and then application of the all-pervasive presence of God in His creation. God sees all. God is everywhere present for He is the source and sustainer of all life. And the concluding verses reveal the proper response to these truths. Given that God sees all, given that He is everywhere present as the source and sustainer of of life, what what then shall we do? That is the question we will eventually ask. Uh, Should we run from God? No, that would be folly. Instead, we should run to Him and take refuge in Him and in the Messiah that He has provided for us. We must be found on God's side. Uh, That is where this psalm will eventually lead us. I want to consider it carefully with you uh, this morning. In verses 1-6, through King David considers that God is all-seeing. O Lord, You have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord... You know it altogether. And so the first line states the principle, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. In other words, nothing about us is hidden from God's sight. He has thoroughly explored us and He truly knows us. You and I do not have this kind of knowledge. I know you and you know me, but our knowledge of one another is only superficial knowledge. I can observe your actions. I can listen to your words. But your thoughts are hidden from me, and my thoughts are hidden from you. Yes, it is true, when two people grow close to one another, they gain greater insights into the mind and the heart of the other person. And I think this is especially true in a healthy marriage. But even then, the true mind and heart of the other is beyond our comprehension. In fact, 
people do not always have a clear understanding of their own mind and heart. Have you found this to be true? Uh, I think sin does this to us. It blinds us to the realities of our own inner life so that we do not even see ourselves clearly. Sometimes our own thoughts and emotions are a mystery even to us. But God's knowledge of us is perfect. He sees our every action. He hears our every word. But more than this, He discerns or perceives our thoughts from afar. Even before a word is on our lips, the Lord knows it altogether. And so we see one another superficially. We know ourselves more thoroughly. But even then, our own thoughts, emotions, and motives remain mysterious to us. But God sees us with this perfect kind of clarity for No creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. That is that Hebrews 4.13, a verse that I read not long ago. He pierces to the division of the soul and spirit and joints and of marrow and discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Hebrews 4.12 As we consider this truth, that God is all-seeing, we should begin to feel like David felt surrounded, trapped, vulnerable before God. This is exactly what he confesses in verse 5, saying, You hem me in, behind and before, you lay your hand upon me. The word translated as hem is often translated, translated as besieged in the Old Testament. So think of it, King David knew what it was to besiege or surround a city with his army. Can you picture it there? David with his army surrounding a city and entrapping that city uh, to conquer it. But here, David picks up that language and, and says, when I consider that God is all seen, it makes me feel this way. God has hemmed me in. He has besieged me. He has surrounded me. I feel trapped. In fact, God has gotten His hands on David, as it were. And here he is recognizing his absolute vulnerability before the Lord who sees and knows all things. In verse 6 he confesses that the thought of it is overwhelming to him. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, it is high, I cannot attain it. I actually appreciate the way that NET renders verse 6. Your knowledge is beyond my comprehension, it is so far beyond me I am unable to fathom it. In other words, David, when he considers that God is all-seeing and his complete knowledge of him, he, he, he feels overwhelmed by it. It's, it's beyond him. It's hard to even process. And Paul confesses something like this in Romans 11.33 when he exclaims, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments and how fathomless His ways! It's hard for us to even fathom or comprehend God's wisdom and God's knowledge. I do hope that you feel this way when you contemplate the knowledge, power, and glory of God. We should feel overwhelmed by it. And I do not mean that in a bad way. It's good to stand in awe of Him. It's good to know and to confess that God is beyond us. Wouldn't you agree with that? I mean overwhelmed in a good way. Um, to stand in awe of God. He is not like us, brothers and sisters. We are like Him in some ways. He has made us in His image, but, but He is beyond us. And it is important for us to always remember that and, and to, to respond appropriately. I wonder 
How does it make you feel to think that God is omniscient, that He is all-seeing and all-knowing? If you really to step back and contemplate it, that God does not only see our actions, not only does He hear our words, but He actually sees us to the core of our being. He knows our thoughts. He knows our passions and our affections. He knows all. How does it make you feel? There is a sense in which God's omniscience should comfort us. It is comforting to know that God sees all things and knows all things. Um, By this we know that God is not ignorant. There is no room for God to grow in knowledge. Uh, This means that God's wisdom is perfect. Uh, This means that God's plans are perfect. His judgments are perfect. You and I, we sometimes lack wisdom. We often lack wisdom. We make foolish plans, therefore. We make faulty judgments. We do this in part... Because we lack knowledge, but it is not so with God, for He knows all things, He sees all things with perfect precision and clarity. Yes, He even sees our thoughts and knows our intentions. It is because we are sinful that God's omniscience is not only a comfort to us, it is also troubling, or at least it should be. It makes us feel vulnerable and exposed before Him. It makes us feel like running away from Him. I think we should remember that that is what Adam and Eve did after they rebelled against God. They rebelled against God and what did they do? They, they heard Him coming and they ran away. They attempted to hide from God and to cover themselves. It was folly, of course. But this is what their impulse was. They tried to run from God. Uh, notice that this is what David felt like doing as well. We see that in verses 7-12. through 12, And... We see that this was his same impulse. After considering that God sees all, he considered running away. But the thought of it um, did, uh, in due time, uh, seem to be folly to him. Uh, He thought the better of it, given that God is also everywhere present. God is all seen. David considers fleeing. And then he thinks, well, that will not work, because God is also everywhere present. In other words, there's nowhere for me to go, is the conclusion that he comes to. Verse 7 Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? In other words, Lord, when I consider that you see everything about me, even my thoughts, I feel like running away from you. But where can I go? For you are not only omniscient, you are also omnipresent. And brothers and sisters, we must realize this. There is nowhere that God is not. He is omnipresent. Everywhere present. Where is God? If I were to ask you that question, I wonder, how would you answer? Some may say, He is in heaven. He is in heaven. And yes, this is true. God is enthroned in the heavenly realm. This means that His glory is manifest or made visible in that realm in a special way. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created the heavenly realm, that is, the spiritual realm, which is presently invisible to us, to show forth His glory in a special way to the elect angels of heaven and eventually to the elect from amongst the children of man. But this does not mean that God is confined to that realm. That would be a mistake. Is His glory manifest there in a special way? Yes. So is it true to say that God is in heaven? Yes, that is true, in a sense. God is in heaven. But it would be a mistake to assume that God is confined to that realm. No, instead we must confess that God transcends heaven. 
And he transcends earth too. Heaven and earth are created realms. God created them in the beginning. But God is not confined to either of these realms. He is without boundaries or borders of any kind. He is omnipresent. You want to talk about standing in awe of God. Just consider His omnipresence for a moment. Is God in heaven? Yes, He is. Is God present here on earth? Yes, He is present here on earth too. But neither of these created realms contain God or confine Him. God is beyond the created realms of heaven and earth. He is omnipresent. And that is what David reflects upon in this psalm. Lord, when I consider that you see all, even my innermost being, I want to run. But that would be pointless. Where would I go? Verse 8. If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. So you're beginning to notice uh, that the Psalms talk about Sheol a lot. I need to teach you all about Sheol someday. I've only given you very brief overviews of of Sheol in, in past sermons. But remember what I have said in the past. Sheol is the place where the dead live. Before the resurrection of Christ, listen carefully to this very brief teaching on Sheol. Before the resurrection of Christ, the bodies of those who died went to the grave and their souls went to Sheol. This was true both of the righteous and the unrighteous, but their experiences were very different in that place. The unrighteous who died in their sins were tormented in Sheol, whereas the righteous who were justified through faith in the promised Messiah were comforted there. And I will not take the time to tell you all about the change that took place in Sheol or Hades when Christ rose from the dead, for I've done that recently. I think it will suffice to say that when the righteous pass from the world today, their souls go not to Sheol or Hades, but into the blessed presence of God. The bodies still go into the grave, but where do those who pass from this world who are in Christ go? Uh, Their souls. Their, Their souls go into the blessed presence of God. This is why Paul said, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, and where is He? He is at the Father's right hand. So a change did occur. Why did this change occur? Well, Christ won the victory through His resurrection. He has set the captives free. He has opened up the way into the most holy place. And so, truly, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord now. Something did change, though, in the realm of the dead when Christ rose from the grave. Now it is only the unrighteous dead who are alive in Sheol, the righteous dead live in the presence of God in the soul while their bodies await the resurrection on the last day. How's that for a very brief and rapid overview of, uh, of Sheol and, and the change that has occurred there upon the resurrection of Christ from the dead? But David, here is the point for understanding Psalm 139. David, living long before the resurrection of Christ from the dead, expected to be comforted in Sheol, also called Abraham's bosom, at the time of death. And here he confesses that God is present even there. God is present even there. Listen again to his words. If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. I think that many assume that God is not present in Sheol or in hell. But that is a terrible misconception For there is nowhere that God is not. He is omnipresent. 
And He does not change, brothers and sisters. The difference between heaven and hell is not God's presence, but the way that God is present in those places. In heaven, God is present to eternally bless His redeemed and to lavish them with His love and grace, whereas in hell, God is eternally present to pour out His wrath and justice upon all sin. In hell, the wicked will be tormented not by the absence of God, but by His presence. I think you've heard it said, and maybe I have been guilty of saying this in the past, that God cannot dwell in the presence of sin. Have you ever heard that? God cannot dwell in the presence of sin. Is that true? In fact, I think when we consider it, it's really a silly statement. God is everywhere present in this world, even now, isn't He? And what is this world filled with except sin? When Adam and Eve sinned, what did God do except approach them in their sin, draw near to them? It would be much more accurate to say that God must punish all sin, for He is just. This is true. And God will punish every sin. He has either punished your sin by setting it on Christ as your substitute, or He will punish it at the final judgment and in hell. This is the biblical teaching. God is omnipresent. If I ascend to heaven, you're there, David says. If I descend and make my bed in Sheol, you you are there. So in verse 9, David looks for another option. He considers another place. Heaven and hell will not hide me from your presence. Heaven and Sheol, heaven and Hades, for you are in those places. Well, how about this? If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. And so you see what David is doing, don't you? He is looking for somewhere to run, but he confesses that there is nowhere in all of creation for him to go. God is present in heaven, above the earth, if you will. God is present in Sheol, under the earth, if you will. God is obviously present on the dry land, for that is where He communes with His people. And God is also present in the uttermost parts of the sea. And so you can just picture David standing there, maybe looking out upon the sea and thinking, maybe if I allow the winds to drive me out there, way out there, I can hide from, from, from the presence of God. Do you, do you ever stand and look out upon the ocean and just marvel at its power? Uh, you, you think, it, it's a mysterious thing. Think of what it must have felt like, though, for David, an ancient man who did not understand what was out there beyond the horizon, to look and say, maybe if I go way, way out there, I can run away from God's presence and be hidden from Him. Uh, but he says, no. God, I, I know that you are there too. Lastly, David considers the darkness of night as a potential hiding place. Verse 11, If I say, Surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. So this will not do either. Heaven, Sheol, land, sea, you're in these places. Well, what about, what about the darkness of night? Will, will it serve as, as, a, as a cloak for me, so that I might hide my sins from the Lord? David says, no, this will not do the trick either. The darkness of night may hide the sins of men from the eyes of other men, but it cannot hide us from the eyes nor from the presence of God. For God is light. Everything is as day to Him. He sees all things with perfect clarity and He is everywhere present. So David is out of options. He has now considered all of creation 
In the spiritual realm, God is present in heaven and in Sheol. In the earthly realm, He is present on land and in the depths of the sea. And He sees with equal clarity in the light of day and in the darkness of night. So truly, David is hemmed in on every side. He is hemmed in on every side. And the same is true for you and me. We may try to escape the presence of God by running to some place or by denying His existence even. But all of this is vain. For He does exist. He is all seen. He is everywhere present. In verses 13 through 18, David goes even deeper in his contemplation of God's omnipresence. Here he clarifies that God is not merely present in the realms of heaven and Sheol, earth and sea, day and night, in a passive way, but He is present actively as Creator and Sustainer of, of, of all life. And I wonder if you could sense the difference between the two ways of speaking of God's omnipresence. It is one thing to say that God is everywhere present, but it is another thing to say that God is everywhere present as the source and sustainer of all things seen and unseen. Can you picture it in your minds? Okay, God isn't confined just to heaven. He's also present with us here on earth. There's nowhere that we can go to escape His presence. But how is He present? Is He kind of close so that He can observe us, you know, from from a bit of a distance maybe? Or, or is He really, really close? I think it is in fact a question of intensity and intimacy. God is everywhere present. Well, how so? Is He here but hands off? Is He here with us but only as a passive observer to us? The answer is no. God is everywhere present and He is everywhere present intimately so. For He is our Creator and He is also our sustainer for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever and ever amen is what paul says in romans 11:36 so listen again to verses 13 and 18 and consider 13 through 18 and consider that god is present with us as our source and as our sustainer too here david says for you formed my inward parts you knit me together in my mother's womb I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made wonderful are your works my soul knows it very well my frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret intricately woven in the depths of the earth your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them how precious are your thoughts O God how vast is the sum of them if I would count them they are more than the sand I awake and I am still with you. So God is omnipresent and intimately so. He is our source and He is also our sustainer. He has thoughts for us more numerous than the sand of the sea. He is intimately involved with every detail of our lives. So David has felt hemmed in, but really hemmed in. Uh, He is not picturing God as an army that has surrounded uh, the city, right? But rather, uh, God is one who has... Uh, broached the gates as it were, and He is present. He's very close, very intimate as source and sustainer. When David says, you formed my inward parts, I take this to refer to the soul of man, the invisible aspects of man, the mind and the heart, the personality. And I wonder if you've ever thought about this. Have you ever asked the question, where did I come from? 
Where did I come from? And no, I do not mean where did, where did your body come from, but here I am talking also about your soul. Where did your soul come from? And the answer is this, it came from God. He formed your inner parts, your, your innermost being. He formed not just your heart, speaking of the fleshly heart that we have, but your heart. Do you know what I mean there? Your soul. He, he formed not only your brain, you know, that physical thing that's in your head, but, but also your, your mind. Uh, he formed even your, your, your personality, the true you. God formed it. Now, how He did this is debated. But that He did it is perfectly clear. For you and I had a beginning. There was a time when you and I were not. There was never a time when God was not, but you and I as creatures, there was a time when we were not. And, and this is true both of our body, which is obvious, but it is also true of our soul. God is the source of both. He is the source of our body. We'll consider that in a moment. But He also formed our inner being. He formed the inner man, the, the heart and the mind, the, the, the personality. God is the one who made us. When, when David says, you knit me together in my mother's womb, he refers to the development of the human body which does contain the soul. I appreciate the New King James Version here. It says, for you formed my inward parts, you covered me in my mother's womb. Verse 15 will restate the same idea but in a different way. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in the secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. The depths of the earth, that phrase is a poetic way of speaking of the darkness and secrecy of, of the womb. And so you get the picture here. God is our source. David is considering God's omnipresence, God's nearness to him. And he says, you are the one that, that brought me in, into existence. You were the one who formed my inward parts and also my body as it was knit together there in the womb of my mother. In verse 14, we see that David's response to these truths is to praise God. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. In verse 16, we learn that God is not only the source of our body and soul, He is also the source of the days of our life. Your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book or written. Every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Now, this is the doctrine of predestination. God has a book, we learn. Of course, this is not to be taken literally, but metaphorically. Men write books, God does not. But what does this metaphorical language teach us about God? It teaches us that the days of our lives are determined by God. He is the source of them. Men write books about what they learn. They write books about history, concerning things that have happened in the past. They write books about things that have been discovered, or things that have occurred, not so with God. He wrote His book concerning the days of our life, when as yet there was none of them. In other words, God is the source of the days of our life. The question regarding the relationship between God's predestinating and our freedom is, is difficult and mysterious, but we must accept what the Scriptures say. God is the source of the days of our life. He formed them. He wrote His book concerning us beforehand. This was true of David, and it is also true of us. 
And notice that David's response to this is not to complain against God, but to marvel at His wisdom and His grace. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. As I have said, God is our creator and He's our sustainer. He is our source. He knit us together, body and soul. He formed our days. He thinks of us continually and He sustains us in this. He is with us and we are with Him. Day after day we awake and God is there with us. Indeed, He will be with us and sustain us for all eternity in the resurrection. So the question remains, what shall we do? What shall we do? If this is true, that the Lord sees our sinful words and deeds, even the thoughts and intentions of our heart, and if it is true that we cannot flee from His presence, for He is everywhere present as the source and sustainer of all life, then then what should we do? We're hemmed in, are we not? What is the solution? Where shall we go to flee from this holy and just God? Where is it that we can find refuge? Verses 19 through 24 show us the way. First, we must turn from sin. That is the first thing we learn here. And that is what is described in verses 19 through 22, where David expresses his hatred for all that is evil. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I can count them my enemies. These words can trouble Christians who have been taught by Christ to love their enemies. Did Christ teach us to love our enemies? Yes, yes He did. And so when we read these words, we can think, well, how do these two concepts fit together? David's expressing here that he hates God's enemies with complete hatred, and yet Christ says, love your enemies. Really, I do not believe there is any reason to be troubled by what is said here. To hate the wicked and to love your enemies are not contradictory things. It is possible to, on the one hand, hate the wicked and their works, and on the other hand, to pray for their repentance and to show them kindness and love. It is possible for us to do these two things all at once. Life is complex, brothers and sisters. Have you noticed? And the Scriptures are complex too. We need to take what God's Word says all of what God's Word says, and not assume that necessarily these things are contradictory. They, they fit together. What David says here needs to be considered in context. After considering God's omniscience and omnipresence, he is choosing not to flee from God, but notice here, he's running to God. He is taking God's side, is he not? He is, in this moment, separating himself from the wicked, from those who blaspheme the name of God. For the, from, he's separating himself from those who live in con- constant sin, and he is crying out to God, going, God, bring justice. He's running to God, and he's desiring to be found on God's side. He prays for God's justice. Again, he separates himself from the wicked and the bloodthirsty. He declares that God's enemies are also his enemies. Your enemies, God, are my enemies, David says. I believe David was to do this in a special way, given that he was king of Israel, given that he was a type 
of the Christ who was to come. But I do also think that we must do the same thing. We must be careful here, but we must do the same thing. In Psalm 1, remember, we learned that there are two possible paths for us. There is the way of the wicked and there is the way of the righteous. Do you remember Psalm 1, the way the Psalter was introduced? There is no other way. And we were urged to not be found walking, nor standing, nor sitting with the wicked. No, we were to be found on the path of the righteous, which leads to life eternal. And so the message was from the beginning, flee from sin and run to God. Draw near to Him and be found on His side. Hating the wicked in this way does not mean that you cannot also pray for them and show them love and kindness as you have the opportunity And that is what Jesus means. Listen carefully to His words. Love your enemies. And He clearly means do good to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. For He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Those are the words of Christ in Luke 6, 32-36. Does Christ have enemies? Does God have enemies? Does He hate the wicked? In a sense, yes. But what does God do in this present evil age? He causes it to rain upon the just and the unjust alike. He shows mercy and kindness even to those who are under His wrath. He shows grace to them. And Jesus is saying, you must do the same. Does God have enemies? Yes. And God's enemies should be our enemies. We should hate all that is wicked. But at the same time, we must reflect God's mercy and common grace here. And be kind even to those who persecute us. The Father hates the wicked and yet is merciful and kind to them. And we are to do the same. That word hatred just needs to be carefully understood and defined. What does it mean? And so we must pay careful attention to how the Scriptures use it. We are to abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good, Romans 12.9 says. And yes, we are to at the same time show love and kindness to our enemies. Do not forget the words of Christ to the church in Ephesus. He commended the church in Ephesus. said, this is good about you. I have, yet this you have, he says, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Do you hear the language there? So this is good, church in Ephesus. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate, referring to these false teachers. But here is the point. After considering God's omniscience and omnipresence, David did not run away from God because he knew that would be folly, but instead he ran to Him. He turned away from the wicked. He took God's side and declared that God's enemies were in fact his enemies. Secondly, David pursued righteousness and the way of life eternal, and we must also do the same. Verse 23, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way of everlasting. In the context of this particular psalm, of the Psalter in general, and of the life of David most broadly, this must be understood, this statement here must be understood not as a self-righteous boast, but as a cry to God 
for grace and for cleansing. Are you following with me here? David is not here saying, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me. Um, And meaning by it, God, go ahead, take a look. You will find that I am perfectly righteous and pure. You will find no fault in me. Is that what he means? It cannot be what he means. Consider the rest of the Psalms of David. We know that he was not upright in and of himself. For example, in Psalm 51.3 he said, For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. So he confesses to be a sinner in other Psalms. And if you know the story of King David, you know that he was a very flawed and sinful man. And we see here, even in this psalm, the context demands that we not take this as a self-righteous boast. For David, after considering God's omniscience, that God sees all, what did he try to do at first? He looked for a place to run. That was his impulse. So what is it that David is saying here when he says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me. Well, One, he is claiming to have a true and sincere love for God and faith in his heart. David was not a perfect man, but he did have sincere and genuine faith. Two, we see that he is asking the Lord to purify him further. Search me, O Lord, so as to purify me. And three, he is running to God for refuge. He concludes the psalm with these words, Lead me in the way everlasting. In other words, my impulse was to run for you from you, God, because you see all. But I know that there is a way to life everlasting. The solution is not to run from you, O God, but the solution is to run towards you, to take your side and to be found in you. He knew that there was a way to life everlasting. And what is that way? Do you remember Psalm 2? Again, this was how the Psalter was introduced to us. Psalm 1, two paths are set before us, but Psalm 2 spoke of God's Justice, the day of judgment, how he would judge the nations with a rod of iron um, through the sun. And I think that psalm, Psalm 2, mirrors verses 19 through 24 of Psalm 139. Again, it speaks of how the sun will judge the nations at the end of time. But then it concludes with these words Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. What David is saying here in Psalm 139 in the concluding verses, verses 19-24, is he's saying, I have done this. I have taken my own advice. You know, In Psalm 2, we were urged to, to draw near to God, to take his side, knowing that God will judge at the end of time through the Son, and to take refuge in the Son of God. And that is what David is doing here in Psalm 139. He is running not from God, but towards Him. He is asking the Lord to lead him into life everlasting. And so think of it. Because God is omniscient and omnipresent, the sinner will find no refuge in heaven or on earth from the just wrath of God. There is no refuge to be found in all of God's creation because of our sin. There is is no refuge to be found, but there is one 
exception. Refuge may be found in the Son. And it is to God's Son, the Messiah, that David fled for refuge. This is the reason for his confidence. This is the reason for all his rejoicing. So what about you? Have you taken refuge in the Son? I pray that you would if you have not. I pray that you would come to your senses regarding your sin. I pray that you would feel hemmed in on every side by God who is all-seen and everywhere present, holy and just. I pray that you would come to the realization that there is nowhere to run except to the Son, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the Savior, the door, the way, the truth, and the life, the only mediator between God and man. If we hope to be found on God's side and to have everlasting life, we must be found in the Son that is in the Christ, in the Messiah. And so I do plead with you to turn from your sins and to Christ for the forgiveness of sins. He is the only place of refuge for sinners. And if you have faith in Christ, I pray that you would like David marvel at the grace that God has shown to you and say with him, How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. This is our great hope, and all of our confidence is found in Christ Jesus. Would you bow with me for a word of prayer? Our Father in heaven, we do ask that you would make us more and more aware of our sin, not to drive us away from you in shame, but to draw us to you because you are merciful and kind. We thank you for this way that you have provided. There is no other way. We can see it clearly. There's nowhere for us to go, but you have made a way. And so we thank you for Christ Jesus, who is the door, who is the way, the truth, and the life, who is the only mediator between God and man. We thank you for the opportunity we have to take refuge in him and under his wings. We thank you that he has atoned for sin. We thank you that in him we might have the cleansing of sin and life everlasting. So lead us in the right way, O Lord. For those who do not yet know Christ, I pray that you would draw them to faith in Christ. For those who do, move us to grow in our appreciation and gratitude for Him. Increase our love for Him. Increase also our obedience. Help us to walk worthy before you, O Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.